Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 46 and it's about Namaqwala and the Urlam Africanus and the Griquas. But first a note about the British occupation. We know they arrived in 1795, defeated the Dutch forces and then attempted to take control of events on the frontiers. As the Dutch had found out, this was not an easy undertaking. The new governor, Sir George Younger, had replaced the acting governor, McCartney, and Younger was a stiff, formal Englishman. But he was also a man of ideas and experimented with farming and, believe it or not, vaccinations. The smallpox epidemic early in the 18th century had decimated the Khoikhoi and white populations, and he didn't want to return to the dreaded disease. Many on the frontier took issue with both his farm experiments and his vaccination campaign. Yes, folks, there were anti-vaxxers around 220 years ago. Sir George Younger did try to emulate Lady Anne Barnard and reach out to the local Dutch community. One of his PR outreach programs was a state ball for what was called All the Principal Gentlemen and Ladies, which opened at 9 o'clock and lasted till 4 in the morning. These British-sponsored rave ball events were a thin layer of spin compared to the brutal realities facing the frontiers men and women. Some of the higher-level Dutch officials had kept their jobs after the British arrived, and we know already about Bresler, the Graf Reinet Landros. The first appointments made by the British were more canny than the Dutch predecessors, as they deployed colonists in the civil service. But the higher posts were filled by Englishmen. And here we come to the first of many observations you're going to hear about money and Britain. You see, there's been a political narrative built over the years that Southern Africa was this great place to run for colonials. It's been sold as this place of pecuniary treasure full of gold and diamonds. Of course, at this point, it was an agricultural backwater with strategic value as a maritime point on a map only. The government in South Africa was expensive. Of course, the British taxpayer paid for the squadron that took the Cape from the Dutch, then the garrison of more than 5,000 troops, and after that, made up the cost of running the expensive Cape. This is where the British began to find that things down in sunny southern Africa were going to be far more difficult to manage than they originally bargained for. The colonists were taxed and had to pay for 12 chief officials, who cost £26,000 sterling, almost as much as the total revenue for the Cape for 1796. This was a real grievance for both the British taxpayer and, ironically, the Dutch and Afrikaans-speaking public down south in the Cape. Worse, the Cape paper money was almost cartoonish. It was losing value so quickly. McCartney and then Jonge had plans to reduce the overheads. The officials of the VOC had enjoyed a rather corrupt lifestyle where the colonists and the Dutch taxpayer forked out for their food Houses, farms, horses, servants, slaves, and household allowances, as well as their fees of office. The British stopped most of these payments, which was one of the reasons, as I've mentioned, that the local colonials appreciated their arrival, at least on a superficial level, and initially. Gone were the days of the BOC fat cat strutting about with his 18th century feathered hat and blue coat lording over the local farmers. Officials suddenly found they were on regular salaries, and only the fiscal as public prosecutor was allowed to draw on extra fees. After some whining from other officials, the British then allowed the vast Admiralty Court to draw fees as well. But these were overseen by the government bean counter, who would use his quill to scratch out any vague costs that appeared on the balance sheet. Soon, however, as is the want of government officials world over, and to this day, 
Younger turned a blind eye because he was what historian Eric Walker calls a hoary old jobber and pretended not to notice some of the abuses of tax that began shortly after he arrived. As I've said, the new bean counters were not like the VOC of old and Younger was rapidly recalled back to England to be provided with a private tongue lashing. That delighted the colonists who rubbed their hands with glee at the tales of disgrace. Ah, how the mighty have fallen! they would say. In spite of the recommendations of the Fiscal, Willem van Reineveld, who was an old orange man and a stout supporter of the Dutch, few changes were made in the law or constitution. The commission of the High Court was replaced by a burgher senate of six selected by the governor in the usual fashion, from a multiple list presented by the board. This was the same process used by the Dutch. Despite much opposition from Dutch judges, McCartney abolished the practice of torturing slaves. I've already told you about the Dark Age methods the Dutch had used, the wheel and other barbarous forms of capital punishment, including being hung, drawn and quartered. The new governor and lieutenant governor took the place of the court at Batavia as the court of civil appeal. A vast admiralty court was set up independent of the colonial government. The incredibly unwieldy high court that predated the British was cut down from 13 members to 8 and all the judges were paid, whereas before they'd had to operate as volunteers, which immediately turned them into corrupt officials. Everyone's got to eat, you know. The civil powers of the Landros courts were extended, especially in that far-off trouble spot called Graf Reinet. On the other hand, whether the British liked it or not, Roman Dutch law was applied even to British-born subjects by a special order of the Secretary of State back in London. The Cape as I mentioned in passing two podcasts ago, did experience a bit of an earthquake when in October 1797 news of a mutiny back at Spithead in jolly old Blighty inspired some seamen in Simonstown to hoist the jacket, so to speak. They mutinied, but promised to head back to work after Rear Admiral Thomas Pringle listened to their complaints and promised redress. But the mutiny persisted, so the governor then threatened to open fire on the mutineers with the imposing Dutch battery still overlooking Simonstown Harbour, and that was the end of that. Some positive changes as far as the local farmers and businesses were concerned included the cancellation of the VOC monopolies. They were now permitted to sell goods even into the sphere of the English East India Company. At the same time, any product from any part of the British Dominion globally was now admitted duty-free into the Cape. Later, this was limited to goods from the newly United Kingdom as the Industrial Revolution gathered momentum. Then, other financial changes were welcomed by the locals. Arrears of land rents were forgiven up to the beginning of the occupation by the British, and no new taxes were levied until the unfortunate younger decided to skim a few shillings. His initial taxes were small trifles, then he made the fatal mistake of levying taxes on game licenses, and worse, he increased the brandy tax or duty, as it was called, which raised a storm, nay, a howl of protest. This howl did not abate until Younger was recalled in disgrace. I'm sure a farmer or two raised his glass of brandy to Younger's departure in a gesture of sarcastic good riddance. And then shock, another modernization that tied Cape Town to the world was the opening of a post office for the Oceanic Mail and allowing the printing of a local gazette. 
The latter didn't last long as an independent operation, as the entrepreneur was bought out almost immediately after it became apparent that the freedom of speech was a dangerous thing, and the government gazette was produced from then on at the castle itself under the watchful and beady eye of Mr. Secretary John Barrow. I hope you remember Mr. Barrow from episode 43. He was the youngster who visited Mwika across the Kai in 1797. The government then tried to stimulate local milling and more local forestry and whaling. Volfus Bay was placed under the control of the British, along with the natural harbour of Angra Paquena, which we know today as Luderitz Bay. The notoriously fickle Cape Weather caught the British out after this. Younger's predecessors, the military commander Craig and first British Governor McCartney, had discovered magazines full of corn and decided to flog this product overseas. Unfortunately for Younger, these important silos were empty when a run of bad seasons struck in late 1797, which actually ruined the governor's grandiose plans for agriculture. It was even more embarrassing for his master gardener, William Duckett, who had encouraged more scientific farming and cattle breeding, which was opposed by the colonists. Suddenly, the British were forced to import wheat and rice at great expense, and the Dutch farmers chuckled into their cheaper brunnevein as they watched the agricultural missteps unfold. A final word about cash before we return to the sunny climes of the Orange River, where we left off last episode. Paper money in the Cape was in short supply and was running at a 30% discount by the time the British arrived. These were mainly in the form of IOUs, or bonds, rather than printed money. But there was printed money. Around 614,000 rix dollars in cash were in circulation and secured on a few paltry government buildings and a few farms. 677,000 more was issued on private mortgages by the loan bank. The British began issuing new paper money by underpinning its value on imported Spanish silver and copper dubulquis, or pence. These were passed around with an inflated value of tuppence, tuppence. The British were going to increase inflation by printing even more paper money just before they left, but we'll get there in a future podcast. It's time to swing our gaze back northwards to the Orange River and its environs. We heard about the Nikwa, the Karana, and the people first called the Bastards, who were to become the Griqua. As the 18th century progressed, the frontier began to close on the latter people, even in the Mekwaland, the zone between the mountains and the sea west of Bushmanland. The fighting against the Khoisan of the northern frontier had begun to escalate, which meant that the status of the Bastards and others known as the Bastard Hottentots was deteriorating. They were expected to render service as part of Trekpur commandos because, as we know, there was a direct association on a family level between these people. After initially being able to purchase loan farms, by the late 18th century, the Bastards were being treated like slaves. Their social level deteriorated. They were forced to work for a period of 20 or 30 years without pay, and even the registration of their names changed. Remember, initially the Trekpurs registered their mixed progeny under their own surnames, but by the last decade of the 18th century, this was no longer the case. These people began to trek away from the colonists. Streams of these mixed-race South Africans first headed towards the Namatkwaland, but later into the Bushmanland and then to the Orange River itself. Letters written by Trekpurs at the time attest to this. By 1780, some were writing that the Hottentots and Bastards were heading to Namakwa country and the officials in the Cape were asked to stop this flow. Their labour was going. The Trekpur slaves and indentured labourers were taking off. 
The Mackerel land in the Orange River was not only a crucible where the different races mixed, it was also a haven of opportunity, as Nigel Penn describes it. People of various social statuses from other parts of the colony could find refuge here. This was, of course, also a mixed blessing. For every runaway slave or soldier who regarded this frontier as a place to hide, there was another who regarded the region as a place to raid and commit violence. So these people became highly experienced in robbing, raiding and hunting. You can imagine this Wild West scenario if you sit back for a moment and consider who these people were. Runaway slaves, coy escaping trek boers servitude, mixed race former commando fighters, deserting sailors from around the world, deserters from the VOC military, vagabonds, bankrupt farmers fleeing the law, murderers, bandits, thieves, and other assorted criminals of all sorts. These people were the cutting edge of colonial expansion in the Northern Cape at the time. If you travel around there today, there is a faint memory of these wild people. The place continues to be one not to be trifled with. It's a harsh climate with a harsh lifestyle, difficult social circumstances. It's almost like another country now, and it was then. These wild men and women needed to keep moving away from the colonial forces, one step ahead of the commanders, the VOC, and later on, the British. These fugitives began to form themselves in different groups of what were initially called trostas. This is a word from the Dutch word drossen, to run away or to desert. They became the symbol of the Cape Frontier and their influence on the local Uniqua, the Khoisan societies, was considerable. They were mostly disruptive, disturbing an ancient equilibrium. Drosters were desperados, armed and ravenous, posing a direct threat to the lives of the pastoralists and hunters who'd lived here for thousands of years. So the natural response was to fight back. The Khoi Khoi became increasingly wary of the colonial fugitives, and in turn, the Drostas took to a parasitic existence, preying on both the Khoi and, ironically, the Trekboers and colonists. The Drostas would live just beyond the Trekboer farms, and these people formed the nuclei of societies that became known as the Urlamps. Large, well-organized gangs, basically, who had at their center the leaders who were descendants of the first men and women who'd fled Cape Town and the Dutch a hundred years before. As these gangs developed, they achieved a measure of political independence, as well as a kind of separate economic viability and their own social cohesion. More importantly, perhaps, they developed their own military capability, which meant they could secure themselves beyond the reach of the Cape commandos. These people had acquired the skills of marksmanship and horsemanship. They traded European commodities, such as horses, gunpowder, and tobacco. They spoke a form of Dutch, which was proto-Afrikaans. They could form their own commandos, and later they would become Christians, as the first missionaries were about to descend on southern Africa. Already by June 1777, reports were received in Stellenbosch. I explained previously how two captains of the Little Namakwa, by the name of Wilskut and Grootvogel, had complained about being attacked and robbed by what they called the Bushman Hottentots. The name they used to describe the leader of this future Urlam gang was the bastard Adam Boer. He had been a knecht or manager of one of the farms of a burger called Peter van den Hever, who lived between the Great River, the Orange as we know it, and the Copper Mountains. It turned out some San had joined Adam Boer just to add a dose of anarchy into the social mix. One of the most influential of the Urlam groups by the end of the 18th century were the Griqua, 
who were descended from the remnants of the original Grigrikla Khoikhoi of the Western Cape. I've spoken of the Grigrikla often and explained back in the early episodes of the series how we'd meet them again, and here they are. The founding father of the Grigrikla Khoikhoi was Adam Kok I, who is believed to have been a freed slave. He's also thought to have bought his freedom from his master, a certain N. Laubscher, and then established himself as a farmer at Stinkfontein in the Picketbach. He left Stinkfontein in 1771 and headed north towards the Orange River with the intention of living as a hunter, along with his sons Cornelius and Solomon. Cornelius pops up as the renter of a farm called Ilansfontein near the Kuberberg in Namakwaland in 1776. Cornelius is regarded as the law-abiding son. He eventually went on to own five farms and became a pillar of Namakwaland society. Solomon managed to buy a farm near the Kuberbach as well, but in the 1770s and 80s, their main source of income was hunting ivory along the Orange River. Simultaneously, the Corks were rich in livestock and they began to accrue many followers in a kind of Old Testament biblical manner. By the time Adam Cook I died in 1797, the Corks were a powerful and widespread force as far as today's region of Griqualand West. Things were stirring along this frontier because the Corks were not alone. Another Barstad, or future Griqua family, were the Barents, whose founder Klaas were fairly well off. His brother, Baron Barents, joined him as they achieved a high degree of wealth and status along the Orange River, and these two were of mixed Khoikhoi and slave origin. Klaas Barents pops up in the writing of Trekpur hunter Jakubus Kutsia on his journey through Namakwaland in 1760. Klaas then appears in the writings of the Swedish deserter of the VOC called Vika, who I've previously mentioned, as well as Gordon, one of the earliest European travellers of the Orange. Klaas had a farm at the junction of the Dabenoris and Orange Rivers, just north of Goodhouse, from where he traded with the great Namakla and went on hunting expeditions. So, the last group I'll mention this episode were far more malevolent and far less welcome. They were known as the Afrikaners. Their leader was called Class Afrikaner, and they were going to cause havoc along the frontier. Class Afrikaner would lead a soon-to-be notorious bunch of gangsters and thugs. This was one Urlam group no one wanted to see approaching. They were mostly mixed slaves and Griqua, and first attracted attention in 1761 when VOC official Adrian van Skoor wrote to the Dutch governor about Bushman's Hottentotten Captain Klaas in Afrikaner. He called Klaas an arrogant man who had an evil disposition. At that point, Klaas was travelling about with his father, Oda Ram, and both were inciting the Khoi to rise up against the colonials. Klaas Afrikaner was captured and sent off to Robben Island, where he died in June 1777. And with Robben Island mentioned, we have another of these historical resonances. The chosen paths of the Koks and the Afrikaners diverged. The former were supported by the authorities, the latter were not. The chances are high, according to historians, that Klaas was the father of Jach and Titus Afrikaner and the grandfather of Jonker Afrikaner, all future leaders of the Afrikaner Urlams. With that, we'll halt and watch the setting sun sink in the west across the vast Griqualand expanse, across the thundering Ochrabi's Falls. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you want to contact me, you can send an email through my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, I'm a guy.